Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment with me. It's 1998. We're in Kamloops, British Columbia. I'm in my bedroom, which is painted blue like the sky, including some clouds. Mrs. Kehoe, who is the preschool teacher at the school I'm about to have my first day at, has come and given me a visit like an incredible preschool teacher does. I've gotten all the information that I need at four years old on what preschool is going to be like. And I remember distinctly knowing the first thing I needed to do if I I was going to take the first step in my life towards success and enjoyment and all the things a four-year-old could possibly hope for was very simply this. When I go to the Rainbow Preschool at Aberdeen Elementary tomorrow at age four, I need to do one thing. I need to make some friends. It's what we hear from our parents. It's what we hear from our teachers. It's what is intrinsically placed within us. We know That to be human means to be in relationship with other humans. And without friendship, something doesn't feel quite right. Now, my first day at preschool, I don't totally remember, but as the story goes from my parents, I went in with a mission. I was going to become friends with every single person in that class. And so I went and I greeted each person and said, hello, my name is Daniel. I like basketball. Would you like to be my friend? Foolproof plan, right? Well, to some extent, it worked. When you're four years old and in preschool, you kind of have to be friends with whoever asked. But I also remember my parents telling me about the story about a girl in that class to who I walked up to confidently with all the bravado of a four-year-old said, hello, my name is Daniel. I like basketball. Would you like to be friends? And she responded, no. And whether it became friends or not, most of us have some kind of experience like this in mind. In a classroom, on a soccer field, in a Sunday school class, we find friends as young children. We find people to do life with, who share our interests or our values, or or just as kids who share our street address, who live on the same street as us, who we can play with and get to know and hang out with day after day after day. But the older we get the more we seem to lose our friendships or maybe not lose our friendships, but just lessen them a little bit. In a modern age, people move away or they go on different paths. They end up at a different college in a different career, a different neighborhood, a different city, a different church. We just sort of grow up and friendship becomes a nice idea, but not all that realistic. As as we age, we know in our heads the importance of friendship, at least sort of. But in the midst of work, in the midst of family and busyness and all the things that are on my schedule, all the Netflix shows I need to catch up on, having an hour or two a day to scroll social media, I don't have time or energy or the patience for deep friendships. I saw it recently online, a line that said this, adult friendship is bumping into someone randomly and saying, it's been forever. We have to get together soon and doing that again and again and again until you die. Or as one person remarked, Jesus's greatest miracle as we millennials see it is not turning water to wine, is not walking on water. The greatest miracle Jesus ever did was having 12 close friends in his 30s. See, friendship is a nice thought, but today it's hard to categorize in the most important relationship space. We've got other spaces for that. In the biblical world, it's family. 
In biblical culture, where the teacher writes these words that we just read in Ecclesiastes, your most important relationships are your biological family, your mother and your father who brought you into this world, your brothers and your sisters who you live with and do life with, not just until you finish high school and move out, but for the majority of your life, your children, your grandparents, your cousins, you live together, you work together. Your vocation is decided not by what your personality assessment says, by but whatever your parents did. Now, in biblical culture, it's family is the highest priority of relationships. But we know today, many of us leave our families, move on from our families, oftentimes become disconnected with our families. And in our modern age, the greatest and most important relationship, we all know, we've learned from Hollywood, it's romance. We've set aside family as the most important relationship for the Hollywood trope that unless you are romantically involved, you are not living fully what it means to be a human. Unless you have a spouse or at the very least a partner or at the very least someone that you're sleeping with, you're really missing out on what it means to have deep relationships with someone. To be single is to be struggling and somehow you need to find a partner to experience physical intimacy and emotional intimacy and what you need. All you need do is find the one and you won't need anyone else. You don't need family. You don't need friendships. You don't need anyone else because if you just find your true love, then everything will be okay. Of course, this just relegates every other relationship to the third category that is most common for all of us today. And that's relationships, which are transactional. These are people you work with or know because it gives you some kind of leg up. You're friends with the mechanic who gives you the best price. You're friends with the manager who you know has a chance to give you a promotion or at the very least a pay raise. You're friends with those people who you feel like move you up in the social circle or economic circle. You're friends with those people you feel envy towards because you wish you had what they had and you like being around it even though there's a sense of bitterness you have towards them. Whatever social space you're in, whatever people you spend time with, the primary space we interact in relationship is what can I get out of this person and what can this person get out of me? And it's not always negative, but it is transactional. Eugene Peterson, writing about the nature of friendship, described this reality. He wrote this. We each have contacts with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set eyes on us, begin calculating what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us, make a snap judgment, and then slot us in to a necessary category so they don't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are. And if we're in constant association with them, we ourselves become the less. See, in our age, friendship has been reduced to shared interest or common youthfulness. Do we like the same things? Are we in the same life stage? Or is there something I can get out of being friends with you? And what we miss out on when we do this is the beauty of chosen relationships that God invites us into. Chosen, not given. Chosen relationships. As C.S. Lewis points out, family is there whether you like it or not. You are born into the family that you are born into with all its blessings and all its issues. And try to separate as you might. Your parents will always be your parents. Your siblings will always be your siblings. 
And then romance is this, this necessary thing for the nature of the human race. You can't procreate more humans without the nature of sexual love. There, there's something essential to romance and ultimately procreation that is needed. And say what you will about transactional relationships, but there is something that is needed. If you want to keep your job, you better have a decent relationship with the person who could fire you. There's all these needs for these kinds of relationships that whether we like them or not, we have to be in friendship though. Friendship's the only kind of love that is a deliberate choice with no technical or biological values. Lewis reflects, friendship is unnecessary. It's like philosophy. It's like art. It has no survival value. Rather, it's one of the things that gives value to survival. And it's so poignant that the writer of Ecclesiastes chooses to step away for just a moment from his laments and his complaints and his frustrations about the toil and the strife of the world to reflect on what's good. Let me quickly read once over the whole passage. Verse nine of Ecclesiastes four. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? If someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, many of you listening to this probably recognize this passage. You've likely heard it if you've been around a Christian wedding. It's one of two or three passages those of us who officiate weddings lean on. It's a classic text that used for the message. And actually, as the Lord and an old mentor of mine who officiated Jalisa and I's wedding would have it, this is the exact text that was preached at my wedding. Now, we'll be honest and confess, I wasn't listening very carefully to the preacher on my wedding day. But what I do remember is the wink he gave me when he read the line about two laying down together to keep warm. And later on, he gave me the manuscript. And what I realized that what he spoke about and what this passage is speaking about is not actually marriage. It's friendship. Friendship is a key part of marriage, but friendship is something more than that. For Solomon, friendship was something that goes deep. Something that was so intrinsically linked to meaning and purpose and joy in one life that he takes time out when he's thinking about the nature of life, the nature of what it means to be human, how to live a life that actually matters. That even in his culture that would have valued family and biology over every other kind of relationship, Solomon seems to say, no, there's something about our chosen relationships, not just our biological ones, that is important. That the teacher points to those people we choose to enter into community with as the potential place of our deepest intimacy. And if you're not convinced, just listen to what Jesus says when he speaks to his disciples, who he calls his friends. John 15. This is my command, Jesus says. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I am calling you friends because I'm making known to you everything that I have heard to my father. See, oftentimes, and rightly so, we view our relationship to God through a number of different lenses that are good and right and true. There were children of God adopted into the family of God through justification that comes by faith and not by works in Jesus. 
that we're servants of the Lord and King and that we are at work in the world as the body of Christ, members doing the work and will of Jesus and for the kingdom of God. We see ourselves in these ways, but question for you, how often do you think of yourself as a friend of Jesus? How often do you think about the nature of the God who created the universe, not just looking at you and loving you like a child, but loving you as a friend? That he is not just duty bound to love you, but that he has chosen to love you. That he is not just your savior, not just your Lord, but one who desires friendship with you. That God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. That he doesn't need anything from you, but he wants to be in relationship with you anyway. See, that's why you were created. In the opening chapters of scriptures, we see that the triune God creates the universe, not out of some need or boredom or twisted desire to be worshiped and obeyed or else feel a lack, but rather out of the beautiful reality of the Trinity's love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons at work in perfect relationship with one another. And as one theologian puts it, it overflows to create other beings to experience this love. God didn't create mankind because he's desperate to be worshiped. He created mankind out of an overflow of relational love in the Trinity. In Genesis 1, he breathes life into Adam, not to be a peon that satisfies God's needs. He already has that need for relationship met within himself, not to create Adam to be a robot to worship, but rather as a person who has free will to experience God in his very nature, to experience the love of God as he walked with him in the garden. But in Genesis 2, before the fall, before sin, before Satan, we see God notice something that it is not good for man to be alone. That in a vacuum or alone, that no man should be an island. A person cannot experience love without another person to reflect that love back to them. There is something deeply missing from what it means to be made in the image of God is there if there is not others with which to exchange and reflect back the love of God that we have been created by. So if I may raise the question, how come? It is so hard to find and build and maintain real friendships. If this is what we're built for, if this is how we've been created, if to be made in the image of God is to be made as relational beings, why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult to have real friendships? Why is it so difficult to be honest? Why does it feel scary at best and impossible at worst to be truly known and genuinely loved? How come we have to point? How come we have to get to the point where we see modern friendship the way that C.S. Lewis described in his incredible work, The Four Loves, reflecting on the nature of friendship as love? He writes this, the modern world ignores friendship. We can admit, of course, that besides a wife and a family, a person needs a few friends. But by the very tone of the admission, the sort of acquaintanceships, which those who would describe as friendship show that what we're talking about has little to do with the kind of love that's described by the ancients. Rather, it's something that's marginal. It's not the main course in life's banquet. It's just a diversion, something to fill up the extra of one's time. To put it more bluntly, how come it's so hard to have friends? Well, I think there's three common distortions of friendship that before we move in any further, I think are worth Noting three distortions of friendship if you're taking notes. The first one is this, it's isolation. Now it doesn't take much in terms of statistics or research for all of us to feel the reality that we live in an age of deep loneliness. 
whether that's a result of pandemic lockdowns, addictions to our cell phones, or just simply a human fear of intimacy with others, the stats do paint a grim picture. Over the last 20 years, as Barner reports, there are four times as many people who report to having zero close friends. That's increased four times over the last 20 years. When surveyed, 54% of North Americans, 54, more than half, reported having no friends who truly and deeply know them. Over half of American people are reporting that they don't feel known by anyone. And why? Because if it's not because we're distracted by all that the world offers, but oftentimes friendship, at least deep and honest friendship, is scary. And it's scary, not just out of some ridiculous illogical thing, because logically friendship is risky. At least real friendship is. There's a part of us that is desperate to be known and to be seen for someone to hear the most vulnerable parts of us, for someone to listen to our stories, to help us heal from our pain. And yet another part of us, and maybe rightly so, is afraid of what might happen if we open up. Maybe we trusted someone and they betrayed that trust. Maybe we offered up something painful and we were met with confusion or even disdain. Maybe like me at Rainbow Preschool, you went up in a much more painful way. You said to someone, hi, I'm so-and-so, can we be friends? And they simply responded, no thanks. We feel rejected or we fear the feeling of being rejected. And so we settle for isolation. But the hope today, and we'll talk more about this, is that as one author put it, relationships may be the place of your greatest wounding but they are also the place of your greatest healing. Are relationships risky? Yes. But are they worth it? An even greater yes. As a pastor, Tyler Staten put it, friendships may hurt you, but isolation will kill you. As we say in our community group that gathers in my home each week, real friends don't stab you in the back, they stab you in the front. There is pain that can come with the nature of relationships and friendships. To love it all is to be vulnerable, to be broken, as Lewis says. But on the other side of the coin of isolation, we see another kind of unhealthy friendship, and that's codependency. Where we ask, or, or more realistically, simply expect without ever asking, our friends to be for us what they never actually could. See, without friendship with God, we need our friends to be our heroes, our saviors, our confidants. We need our friends to be the ones who will never let us down, who will never say the wrong thing, who will never miss a call, who will never cancel, who will never do anything to offend or hurt or harm us. And that's just too much pressure. That's too much pressure for a sinful, broken human being who will make mistakes. And even at their best, human beings can never be to you what only God can be. And when we ask our friends to be what only God can be, they will buckle under the weight that they will never meant to carry. They were never meant to carry, and you will be crushed under the heartbreak of their failure. Everyone gets hurt when we expect other people to operate in the role of Jesus in our lives, whether that's a spouse, whether that's a friend, whether that's a coworker, whether that's a mentor. Only when we have healthy relationship with God can we be liberated. Liberated to serve and operate as friends in the image of Jesus, but not in replacement of Jesus. In a way that we can actually serve instead of need to save in our friendships. That I can love and honor and care for someone, but I don't have to save them. 
that someone can love and care and be there with me when I'm struggling and when I'm not okay. And if they let me down, I'm okay because I know that they're only picturing Jesus to me. And then thirdly, the kind of friendship and relationship that I think is maybe the most dangerous for those of us who call a church home, it's relationships built around superiority. See, friendships of superiority are not about the other. They're about my ego, my own confidence, my own desire to be loved and respected and liked. They're one-way relationships where we can hold ourselves as the wise sage, as the person with all the answers, as the person who has their life together. I'll help someone who's struggling and I'll be in the position of power and authority because they are struggling more than I am. I'll let them pour out their souls to me. I'll let them share what they're going through with me, but I'll never share with them because I don't need it. I don't trust them. I want them to trust me. I want them to be open with me. And yet I'm not willing to do the same in reverse. More often than not, these happen in group settings where friendships are built around the things we don't like or the things we critique or the things that frustrate us. Think about how often you've been in a group of people and you get talking about something you don't like. It's one of the easiest and quickest ways to feel close to someone, but to not actually be close to that person. A political party you hate. Something in the world that makes you mad. Something that gives you frustration. Or maybe you become a holy huddle where you separate yourselves, where no one takes as seriously this, that, or the other as you and this small community. And your community, your friendships are built around knowing that you take more seriously than others. And how many of us haven't felt or left a group setting, a time of friendship where we leave feeling a little bit icky and really insecure because of what was said about someone who wasn't in the room. We feel gross and dripping with sin and shame. And we also feel insecure because we wonder what gets said about us by that same group of people when we're not in the room. If that's what gets said about them, what gets said about me? A friend and I were talking recently and he said this really incredible line. He said, there's a lot of Christian friendships that aren't built on much more than gossip. How many of your friendships are built on what you dislike? on feeling better than others, or for many of us, how many of your relationships are built on gossip? And so we choose to live in the fear and the false safety of isolation or codependency or superiority, never truly being known, armored up and safe from the risks that come from real friendship, but at our core, lonely. What if there was some kind of friendship that took us beyond these broken visions for community? and into something deeper, into something more holy, something that looked less like betrayal and ego and distrust and more like Jesus. It's what the early Celtic Christians called anamkara or soul friendship. Those people who we have moved beyond pleasantries or shared interest or shared life stage or shared location to say, I'm going to do life with you and I will bear open my soul to you into a space of vulnerability that marks us. Earlier, we shared the Peters, Eugene Peterson quote talking about the nature of transactional relationships, but immediately following that, here's what he writes about what real friendship can look like. Here's what he says. Then someone comes into our life who isn't looking for someone to use, who's leisurely enough to find out what's really going on with us, 
who's secure enough not to exploit our weakness or attack our strengths, who recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions, confirming what is deepest within us. In short, a friend. See, this is the vision that the Bible casts of the joy and beauty and power of real friendship. And this section in Ecclesiastes where Solomon writes about what friendship points to, I believe there's five distinct elements that he shows that show us what it means to be a soul friend to another. First, the shared mission. Verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. See, if friendship begins with common interest, it is carried forward by common vision or purpose. I am closer with my teammate in soccer than I am with the person I sit beside at a Whitecaps game. Do we have the same interest? Yes, but do we have the same mission? With one, I'm excited about what's happening on the field. I'm excited about what's going on, but really beyond this couple of hours together, there's nothing more. But with a teammate, We're pressing towards something. We're trying to grow together. We're seeking out something good. We don't just have a shared interest, but a shared passion. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the author and poet, wrote this about friendship. He said, friendship does not so much ask, do you love me? So much as it asks, do you see the same truth? And are you passionate about the same thing? See, after Jesus calls the disciples and his friends into this new depth of community in John 15, he actually later prays for them in the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. He prays in John 17 for all believers. That's you and I, if you're listening to this today, it's someone who claims the name of Jesus. Here's what he says. I pray not only for these, but for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Did you catch that? That picture, our friendships are a reflection of the Trinity. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Do you catch that? Jesus prays for our unity. Jesus prays for our friendships, for us to be united together by God, not just for the sake of feeling good though, not just for the sake of comfort or shared interest, but actually that our friendship would demonstrate to the world what Jesus's love looks like so that they may be completely one, so that what? The world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. My friends, what if our apologetics was not arguing with people and bantering with people on Facebook comment sections? What if our friendships were our apologetic? What if the way that we loved one another said to a watching world, this is what it looks like to be loved by Jesus and to love others? How would that change the way we do mission? How would that change the way we do evangelism? If we saw our friendships as the best possible way we could show other people what the love of God looked like. How? Through number two, sacrificial service. Ecclesiastes carries on. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity to the one who falls without another to lift him up. Here's a question to consider. What does it cost you to be friends with someone? And like, I don't mean the cost of dinner if you go grab dinner with friends. I don't mean the cost of a coffee if you meet up with someone at Gratia in the middle of the week. I'm asking you what it costs. 
and your time and your energy and your emotional state? What is it costing you to love someone truly? To truly love someone will always involve sacrifice. Remember in John 15, Jesus describes true friendship as what? To lay down one's life for another. And so what does it look like for you in your friendships, in your deepest friendships, not to ignore boundaries, not to be unwise, not to have no personal care for yourself, but to lay down your life for the sake of others. How do you move from transactional relationship to sacrificial service in the image of Jesus? Because we can only truly serve one another when we've built enough trust for when things go bad. Here's a question I often ask young adults and youth who chat with me about the nature of their friendships. Sure, you might have lots of friends. Sure, you might have lots of Instagram followers. Sure, you might have a thousand people saved in your cell phone. Who could you call in your worst moment? When everything falls apart, when nothing's okay, when you are at your worst in the depth of the pit of despair, who can you call? Those are your truest and deepest friends because it's there that we find number three, compassionate presence. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. Solomon writes, but how can one person alone keep warm? Now, again, much to the chagrin of my wedding officiant, this is not a reference to sex. This is a reference to friendship. This is a reference to being lonely and being met in the loneliness and the cold and the darkness. Comedian Theo Vaughn actually said a really profound thing. He said, the thing about being alone, it's it's not that you feel like you don't have anybody. It's that you feel like nobody has you. But in soul friendship, we find that we aren't just cared about for what we can bring or what we can do, but even when we have nothing to offer, a friend offers their presence. Job's friends famously did a terrible job in caring for the man who had lost everything. They gave terrible advice. Everything they said was unhelpful and hurtful. When God comes, he rebukes them all for how poorly they've done it. The only thing we see them do right, it's just a couple of lines in Job chapter 2. They show up, they see Job in his pain, and they weep with him for seven days and seven nights. No one says a word, but they practice the ministry of presence. It's cold and it's dark and it's lonely and it's brutal, but in soul friendship, you know you're not there alone. As Brene Brown describes the difference between sympathy and empathy, where sympathy looks down and says, whoa, you're in a pit, that sucks. Empathy says, let me come down with you so that you know you're not alone. It's the visit to your friend who's in the hospital. It's the quiet stillness of sitting with a friend whose spouse has left them. It's to be with someone in the midst of their pain that we enact the ministry of not our words, not our advice, not our good thoughts, not our Christian cliche, but of presence. I am with you. But beautifully, friendship, soul friendship goes beyond just presence and moves into number four, commitment in conflict, verse 12 in Ecclesiastes 4. And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. See, what's powerful about friendship is that we don't stay in the pit. That that where empathy says, I will come down into the pit and the pain and the struggle with you. The beautiful thing about Christian, spiritual, soul level friendship is we can say by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to stay here. There is hope for us to get out of this pit. There is hope in what God is doing. And I am with you, but we don't have to stay here and we can walk through this battle together. I'm here with you. 
I see you and I love you in your pain and in your struggle. And I want to walk beside you and hold you up and fight on your behalf and care for you when you're struggling and lift you up when you fall. But we are going to get out of it. It's hard and it's messy and there's conflict. And we have an enemy who is pushing against us. But in all these things, the core purpose of our friendships is that we would walk alongside each other for the purpose that Jesus brings friends into our lives. And that's number five. It's the core of what it means to be a friend. It's spiritual transformation. And this key line in this verse that we all know from all the wedding passages, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. When God and a person and another person are intermingled in relationship, it is then that we can move through the process of what God wants to do in our lives. When Jesus continued his prayer for us, he gave us something deeper. He gave us a purpose and a mission for our friendship, not simply comfort and ease. He continues his prayer in John 17. He says, Father, I want those you have given to, be, be, given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundations. Righteous Father, the world doesn't know you. However, I have known you and they have known you that sent me. I made your name known to them that they will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus praying for? The purpose of our unity, the purposes of our friendship is not comfort, is not ease, is not someone to watch the game with. It's Christ-likeness. That our goal in friendship is to be formed into people defined not by who we hang out with, but by the love of God to be shaped into Christ-likeness. To move from fear and insecurity and sin and shame into connection with God and with others. To experience love. To experience God's love to us. To experience others' love to us. And then to reflect that back to them. To live out what Jesus gave that we all know is the central command when he was asked, what does it mean to follow God? Love God, love people. We all know it. Do you know what you need to love God and love people? People and God. No man is an island. You cannot follow Jesus in isolation. We need friends because it's only in the context of real friendship that we can grow into the people we've called to be. And in spiritual friendship where we unite with others, we experience all the joys and the gifts of friendship. We have fun together. We laugh. Man, I don't laugh any more than when my small group comes over. It takes us forever to get through the questions because we get off track and we joke and we tell stories. There's a deep level of joy and fun. Develop a theology of fun in your relationships. We experience deep comfort and commitment to fight for one another. We serve one another. We show up for people with meals when they're struggling. We sit with them in their pain. We help when things are not looking good. And we celebrate when things look amazing. We share experiences. We do watch the game together. We do have coffee together. We do just get together and have a meal together. We practice empathy towards one another in the good, the bad, and the ugly. All those things are beautiful, but at the core, they're not what friendship is about. They're benefits, but they're not the core. The core is this. The core of sacrificial and soul-level friendship is that we might experience the love of God. That you might experience the very love that Jesus said to find friendship, to lay down one's life for a friend. That Christ's ultimate picture of what friendship looks like is his willing obedience to go to a cross, to sacrifice himself 
for our good. That when we go into the ordinary stuff of everyday life, that as we live and walk and work and do life with others, we might experience all that God desires for us. We might be transformed in the people that God is calling us to be. As Eugene Peterson puts it, friendship is holiness, like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine. Friendship takes what's common in human experience and turns it into something holy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us friends. Oh God, we're, we're thankful that we're your children and we're saved and we're beloved and, and all these, these titles and these spaces that we know we have because of what you've done on the cross and in the resurrection. But like Jesus, for a moment, we just like revel in the reality that you look at us and you like us that you call us your friends. So Lord Jesus, show us what friendship looks like. Friendship with you, God, and friendship with others. God, I pray that you would bring into our lives people who love us deeply, that we might find safety and that we might find connection. God set us free from the lies of isolation that keep us alone, from the lies of codependency that put the pressure on others to be you, from the lies of superiority that look at others as transactional relationships. Let us be known and loved and let us know and love that we might experience your love, King Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have invited us into friendship with you and with others. And I pray, Lord, that for anyone listening to this, that for those of us who may not feel a sense of that deep soul connection, would you provide, Lord Jesus, what those kind of friends look like in our lives? May we be known, may we be loved, and may we experience your love in and through our lives, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.